What's up, guys? Welcome back to the WRPF podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uslar. Today's the big 3-0, episode 30. We've been blowing through these episodes, had tons of fantastic guests. I'm super excited to have my boy Michael Greeno on this week. All right. Michael Greeno is a longtime powerlifter. He's been in the sport a lot longer than most of us. He's a lot older than most of us. You're almost 40, bro. Or do you, am- you turn 40? I am. I am 40. Congratulations. You might be one of my first 40 year old guests. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a master's lifter. It's great. (laughs) Everyone's like, oh, I'm sub masters. Nah, 40 true masters. Here we are. You've done a lot of powerlifting over the years, but most recently over the last, you know, three, four, five years, uh, you've come up as a coach. You have tons of strong, fantastic athletes underneath you. Any big level meet, you're probably going to see Greeno there, whether it's coaching, whether it's in a judge's chair. So we just want to hear the Greeno story. All right. Besides, we'll, we'll get to eventually your current, your current lifters, your current roster, some of the accolades and accomplishments you've been able to make as a coach. But we just want to hear the, the Greeno story and powerlifting from your perspective. So welcome. And thank you for being on, bro. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, that's a that's a loaded question. That's weird. Uh, my story. Um, crap. I mean, I tell people it's funny because like when I do client intakes and different things like that, like I kind of tell them where I've been, where I've come and stuff like that. I started this sport when I was like 13. Um, I was I had broken my ankle and I couldn't play sports or anything like that. So I was just I was just in the weight room all the time and uh, was in the process of rehabbing it and had met this old dude in a physical therapy center. And he's like, you should lift weights. He's like, it'll make you, it'll make you strong and all this other stuff. And so I went to the gym that he did. He was like, at the time, his name was Don Schaefer. He was a like 65 year old, like national bench champion, benched like 400 pounds of 65 or something like that. Just a bear of a man so correct, and correct, to, I'm wrong i just did some quick mental math this is the 90s right yes you started powerlifting in the 90s okay yeah. sorry go ahead continue no, no no yeah yeah and so you know i've been in this for what 26 27 years um it's funny because i just kind of started lifting i mean we weren't doing anything right me and some friends like we just kind of started lifting and finding our way after school to, to the gym. And, you know, the first handful of years wasn't really much of anything. It was just us lifting heavy and basically maxing out every session. And then some of the other guys that were there just kind of called us dumb kids. And I mean, we just, you know, by the time we had got, we had done our first meet, it was, you know, half the meets back then in like South central Missouri, it wasn't really, much of anything they were inside churches they were uh they were just kind of everywhere there was such a novelty sport at the time um and it was a, such a much different time when you went to like even to the point where you would go to like a supplement store and like they had glass cases on things you could and couldn't take if you were under the age of 18 because it was so much more was like legal and the untested side blurred so much versus the tested side blurred so much because, you know, what was out there and what was available is like a supplement to take. And uh, so there was just such a this weird fine line between all of it, between like, cause I didn't know anything, you know, I was 13 of other things to worry about like school and stuff. And 
as I kind of progressed through, I just kept getting stronger, kept lifting weights. Um, it's weird. And I'm countering this now because I have a 16 year old kid that I work with now, like coaches and strength coaches in high school and stuff don't like you getting strong and not playing a sport. And I played sports. Like I played football. I wrestled. I, I kept, I kind of got hurt, found kind of fun ways of getting hurt, like breaking bones or breaking my clavicle or, or whatever. And I just kind of found myself back in the weight room, just lifting weights. Uh, so that's essentially when I started, I started competing at such an early age. I think by the time I was 20, I'd already kind of competed at like, I don't know, like 50, 60 meets. Um, Correct. Correct. Was- wrong. I'm going to go ahead and assume through this period of your high school years while you're playing these sports at that time, weights and kids were not really a thing at all. So they the, these these high school, there was no high school weight rooms like now it's much more modernized. Some form of high school rate weight room. There probably wasn't any of that. Right. There was, but it was completely funded by the high school football coach who collected cans every like he had this s10 pickup truck and he'd go around town picking up cans so they could so he could afford a weight room for the for the high school and he was just all for the football team and it was like wasn't funded or anything like that and that's how we got the equipment it was all just hand me hand me down hand me down stuff from like other colleges because the town i'm from uh has a uh, engineering school at it and so they would just kind of handed down a bunch of a gym equipment as they retrofitted their gym and gave it to the high school Uh, so yeah, there wasn't a lot of it, but there was enough of it around where we could still lift and and I could do that at high school and I would do it in a gym, uh, in a globo gym as well. But powerlifting was very, again, it was tiny, 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 tiny. It was, um, it was kind of a weird fragmentation phase because like the early nineties, you know, like when you start seeing it, like on ESPN and stuff like that, like you'd see back in the old, like footage days, there was this like gap in the nineties and two thousands where it just wasn't prominent at all. It was like ultimate Frisbee, (laughs) you know? Um, And, uh, and that's kind of what it, you know, what it was. It's like you lifted, but he lifted for sport and that's what you did. Like it was just a means to an end to get stronger and do other sports and things like that. It wasn't, uh, you know, at least from my perspective, like the meats were very small. They're very tiny. Um, and a lot of times they weren't even sanctioned and no one was recording information about them. Like I said, the first like 50 meets I might have, like, were not even like legitimate feds. They were just, Hey, show up to this church. We're going to do something for charity. And there was just something always going on, something like that. It was, you know, some place was doing strict curls. Some place was doing bench squat deadlift. Some places were doing hang clean, whatever. It's what they chose, chose to do. Um, and and some some perspective on what that looked like. The more traditional style meets, like were there weigh ins? Like you said, they were in random places, like a church or a gymnasium. They they were just using standard pound plates, a standard barbell, like no no specialty bars, anything like that, right? Yeah, just I remember when I was eighteen. That was probably the first competition I legitimately went to. And it was a USAPL meet, technically, I believe, but it was using an old rickety bar and pound plates and and things like that. That's all they had. And it was technically the show me state games, Missouri state games, but it was it was sanctioned through the USAPL. And I weighed in two hours before and just kind of did 
things. Um, and we just lifted and it was, it, I mean, I have the newspaper article from it because <laughs> I took first, but that's about it. Like that's all you'll ever hear from that. Um, were, some you, places, were you in single ply at this point? Were you lifting raw? Raw. Yeah. Like I was just raw. Like I just, I had a belt and that was in some wrist straps. That's about all I had. I didn't get into single ply until much a little bit later uh, when I was in my twenties. Um, and I really didn't do a whole lot of competing in my twenties um, until the later part of my twenties. I just kind of lifted and uh, I had essentially moved from my hometown uh, and was just kind of, working through life and college and whatever. Right. And so like competing was kind of on the back burner, but I just continued to lift and I continued to, I'd go to meets and um, I had a buddy of mine. Uh, I would handle him and help him out. He was a bit, pretty big raw lifter uh, at the time. And he kind of got in single ply because the thing was a single ply was raw at the time. It was raw. It was just like one ply of, cause if you look, read the rule books, your singlet is one, a one ply, non-supportive piece of equipment the rule the rule i was it was it was flexed and so all that single ply equipment adhered to the raw rule right right Knit wrist straps knee wraps all that stuff he's like oh yeah it's one it's it's one ply of equipment it's a one ply singlet it just this singlet happens to be extremely rigid and it doesn't stretch instead of using polyester or whatever spandex or whatever we're using boat canvas or denim or <laughs> or whatever there was right. no rule against it it was just that's what you did and then eventually it kind of they're like yeah this is supportive it's whatever and they kind of changed it to single ply and then that was like that's how like multiply and that's how single ply all kind of came to be because it was just all a a bend to the rules much in the same like the gen three sleeves you see today it, it it was like there was a lot of controversy around it it was just a bend to the rules like no one says he can't use a very dense form of neoprene it still says neoprene it still is it just happens to be very much more rigid and much more supportive right and uh heck same with the kabuki deadlift bar you know it, it again it's equipment and people are going to push those things uh so you just kind of see those and that's kind of again i came up through the multiply era um lift with a bunch of multiply guys a lot of times it's like my com competition and stuff kind of started taking taking back off because it's like wasn't really necessarily a hiatus because i was still lifting i was still doing stuff i was still kind of going to meets just wasn't really actively competing myself um and wasn't probably till like 2007 and when i kind of hooked up when i got up here at kansas city and kind of hooked up with a um with a guy bunch of guys in a storage unit and uh, one of the guys that was his, his name was al caslow and um a lot of people won't know who he is but he was he was number one all time he's actually top he's still top all time in a lot of ways uh top five top three and stuff like that at 165 he squatted 887 at 165 multiply um he was you know during the multiply days and stuff like that you had two really big gyms you had west side barbell and you had big iron up in omaha and that's where like sean frankel michael cartinian 
Jim Grandick, like all these really big 25, 2700 pound total dudes at like 242. You know, they're squatting a grand. I think Sean Frank will bench close to nine, you know, um, and a Rage X, like a crusty old Enzer bench shirt, you know. Uh, I kind of linked up with those guys. Al was sponsored by Elite FTS at the time. So, you know, I was on Elite, Elite FTS and stuff throughout those things and see his name. And he's a sponsored athlete, you know, you know, he's next to, croc and he's he's next to all kinds of people and like crap you know and from there um it just kind of started to explode so i started learning under him and that's when i started really getting more like more into my gear uh and i went to the olympia a handful of times when that was going the uspa started to take off it was weird it was like the whole that's when the whole transition to raw started to happen at least um it's like you started seeing this wave of change. Like you started seeing waves of things different and stuff like that. Um, and you started seeing less multiply and multiply meets happening. And then you started seeing people show up in like blue reband knee sleeves and are like, we don't really have a division for that. We have wraps and, and things like that. And people started making adjustments and that's when the raw stuff started to take off because then you know, it's a it's a weird thing, um, as, as you started as, as you saw, because the thing is, is it was kind of tightly knit to the CrossFit, you know, eras and stuff, and people were trying to find a home for that. So we we're training out of the storage unit. We at the time we had moved to the strongman gym, and uh, so we started having people funnel in, just random people. It's like oh, I just need a place to train, need a place to lift. I used to train at this CrossFit. But, you know, whatever. And so our team started to grow a little bit. What's funny is because I was always in the search for training partners <laughs> and stuff. So from for me, like, you know, I was going between Gold's Gym and a place called Stone and Barbell Club here in Kansas City. Uh, and that's when I kind of met uh, a couple dudes and one you know, he's just kind of sitting there with some, imagine, a, a, you know, a big burly guy wearing like small beats headphones and like mop top hair. And he, he's squatting like 595 for a triple and stuff like that. And I walk up to him like, you're pretty strong. He's like, nah, nah, not really. I'm not really good enough to compete and stuff. And he's like benching four and he's squatting six for multiple reps. Just weird looking kid, big dude, strong. And I look at him and stuff. And I'm like, you should come train with me. He's like, I don't know if I don't know if I'm not that strong, whatever. And uh, so I convinced him and his buddies to do that eventually and stuff. And uh, that was Jeff Frank. So I had pulled him from a gold's gym to my thing because I needed additional help spotters and, and stuff like that. Because um, my training partner, Al, at the time was he, he worked medical sales. So he was only there two days a week. We train at four in the morning and like. He squatted like 900 in his last, like not close to 900 in his last meet or 900 in his last meet. He was only training two days a week. That's wild. <laughs> it's insane. Like, it's insane. Like it's like once you got to that high of level, um, he's like, you don't want to train that much. You just got to keep it going because I know I can squat nine. It just need to show up on meet day. I need to know that I can do it. Right. And it was weird. It was, it was a weird time. And then it just kind of, again, from there, it just kind of snowballed. Like as the raw uh, era kind of started to ramp up. Um, people like Jeff, um, 
Uh, another guy named Ben Moore, just kind of local to the area. And then this was before JP Price here, at least in the area. Um, and we all kind of just kind of started going. And there was a lot of like, I mean, internationally, there was probably like in the world, there was like, I don't know, maybe like 15 people with 2000 pound totals, like in, in wraps and raw or whatever in wraps, because that's what was raw. What's what raw was. And I think within arm's length of me and I was helping out and I was talking to, and like, they were asking me questions or whatever. And I was coaching Jeff. Uh, I was helping out Ben Moore. Both of them had 2000 pound totals. Um, There's a guy up in Nebraska that was friends with Jeff. His name was Kent Fleming. Um, you know, he was kind of a part of our crew a little bit. And he was like one of the first dudes to squat a grand. And um, I was just kind of working, not like I was coaching directly some of them, but then I was just kind of like seeing these dudes at meets because they're all, we were all doing the same meets. And then they're like, hey, can you like talk to me about coaching? Can you talk to me about this? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then like, I'm looking at this and then like, there's this entire mob of people behind me and I'm working and I'm, I'm wrapping six or seven pairs of knees while wrapping my own and competing myself <laughs> and doing single ply. I think one meet that I had done with my entire crew, I had wrapped like seven pairs of knees, wrap my own, put help. Like they were helping me put on my suit and stuff like that. And then still had to bench. And then, so of course I also like deadlifted and passed out at the top. It was, it was fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, like, and as it's just kind of whirlwinds after that, and it just, it keeps going and you can, it's just that same thing. I keep finding more people and I find more things. And then the community changes and timeline wise, um, some of these initial training partners you're talking about, when, when, when was this? 2010, 2011, 2012, 13. Yeah, so that's, that's why you talked about like that kind of early days of CrossFit where people are seeing a barbell in a different manner. There's other styles of gyms besides just gold gyms and your occasional hardcore barbell gym that's in a hole in the wall middle of nowhere there's these other kind of communities but then these people who are more exposed to just the gold gyms kind of environment you're finding them you're kind of tugging them over right yeah yeah and it's just like and people are coming and they're you know wanting to do what we're wanting to do what wanting to do what we're doing and they don't know what to do so i'm like come on I'm going to help you out and stuff like that. I'm just writing programs. Again, keep in mind, I'm not an official coach. I'm not taking money. I'm not doing anything. I'm just like writing stuff for things for me. And people are kind of following what I'm doing or we're all just kind of doing the same things and stuff. And, you know, um, what did that type of training look like at that time? Was it very West side kind of influenced? Like what were you looking at and deciding, or it was just this day you're going to squat and do 10 reps this day. You're going to squat and do five reps and RP wasn't necessarily a thing. Percentage wasn't necessarily it. Or what was it? So RP was like coined, you know, Mike Tushier was around. Like he was, he was definitely, he was definitely around and RPE was definitely a thing. He probably wasn't as prominent as he was today. He was still lifting. He was still an active lifter. Um, we kind of got our influence and stuff like that, like from a division one strength coach, his name was uh, Landon Evans. Um, he had worked with Al quite a bit and we were using a lot of sub max um, and a lot of like a lot of sub max training and stuff. We just weren't going heavy. We were just doing reps and we were committing to the quality of our lifts um, you know, I think when Jeff squatted 877 
outside of me prep that 20 week training prep that we did up to that, I think he didn't even touch over 700 for up until probably the last like six weeks. We just kind of really didn't, didn't we use chains? Um, we use the, we, we use a lot of, uh, we use a lot of what a lot of people misconstrue about West side or, or things like that, like accommodating resistance. Whenever I see someone sees chains or bands, they immediately think West side, but like we use a lot of the tenants and stuff of conjugate, like accommodating resistance, um, you know, max effort method and stuff like that. We would use it when it suited our needs, but I started to just kind of blend them all together into this kind of a hodgepodge. And it was funny because like at early days, like by some of the people, because you'd meet them at me. So like, what do you do with your people? And I'm like, dude, you're weird. Like I was, I caught a little bit of scrutiny because I wasn't following West side to a T. I wasn't following like linear periodization to a T. Like um, there was this like old method called the chain method. And like something that Rick Hussey at Big Iron used to do, he's like, hey, you're 12 weeks out, pick a weight you want to lift. He goes, you have, and then you get to that weight on week one, you squat it four or five inches high. He goes, yeah, you have 12 weeks to get that to depth. (laughs) And the thing is that they had a chain, like you're the, the, from the monolith, like the, the chain that would take you down and you would go down to a certain thing and hit that chain and you'd come back up and you'd go low, a little bit lower every single week. Until like you were prepped and you got you got full distance and That's stuff like wild, that. Hell, man, that's squat nine hundred. Guess what? Squat it eighteen inches high, and in twelve weeks we'll get you to depth. <laughs> right. That's what it was like, and you just there was just things like that, and so I caught a lot of heat because I was doing something a little bit differently. I wasn't following these things to a T. I was kind of blending them all together, kind of what you see today. I you know everyone kind of takes because the the knowledge wasn't as freely flowing. You took what was kind of good from here. You took what was good from here and you just kind of, you know, whatever. And you, you learn from a, a different people and you learned it meets. You didn't learn on Instagram. I mean, it still wasn't a thing. There wasn't a lot of content. There wasn't a lot of, you know, you read elite FTS, right. And you, you kind of followed some of those people's training logs. to kind of see what they were doing. Um, or you read like the West side manuals and stuff. And that's what you got strong. Um, you know, Josh Bryant was kind of, still lifting and putting out stuff. And, um, you know, if you wanted a big, like find out some bench programs, you'd maybe, you know, read some of his stuff. Um, so yeah, there was a, there was, there was a, the, the, the data was starting to kind of, the, the content was starting to kind of come upwards, but it's still very few and far between. So it became more of a hodgepodge of what you, you knew and what you read. Um, it was a lot of that. And again, that was really my only influence as a coach. Cause I never really had a coach or anything. I just kind of had people kind of point me and tell me what to do. So I didn't, you couldn't even learn. I wasn't even learning under anyone. So I just I thought what I felt was right. And then people were getting really, really strong from it. And it just, I was like, well, if this person totals 2k and this person totals 2k and then like, I'm in the gym, you know, fast forward to like 2014, 2015, and now I'm linked up with JP Price and he's a part of the crew now. And he's, you know, we're all, we're all like our crews in Kansas city are all merged together. And I'm kind of helping everybody in the gym with programming and like coaching and and, and what's right, what's, what's wrong and stuff. You know, he's squatting a grand and you know, where he's coming in, he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this today. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's good. And I'm just sitting there watching him on wrapping his knees and, 
kind of doing the thing that I normally did. And then he goes to a meet, he squats a thousand three and he squats the all, you know, he hits an all time world record raw uh, before Ray Williams does it. You know, it's like, man, like, this is interesting. Like these concepts of what people are doing, um, you know, and, and, and I can't, you know, I won't claim any of JP stuff because I just was there. I was part of the crew, but I was there to help and provide insight but it's one of those types of things where you start having your hands on a lot of like really big people and you're like, maybe I'm kind of good at this. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'll continue to do it, but it wasn't until 2020 is until I actually started doing it like professionally and taking money for it. I had been doing this since like 2007 and helping out people since 2007. And then I finally, it was like, ah, I should probably do this. Maybe. What you were know? you doing career wise through all of this? Uh, software. I'm a software engineer. I still am. Um, I work everything from web application development to API development to right now I'm a software engineering manager um, and, a, and a leader and also a mentor. Uh, but uh yeah, I just kind of came up through my career and eventually became in more leadership position. And I traveled a little bit more. Um, that kind of got in the way some of my com- competition um, and things like that. Uh, I always prioritize life uh, over my own. Like I would focus on the coaching and focus on my life. And then c- competing would kind of be at the lower end of that spectrum, um, mainly because, because I like I'm pretty injury prone. And it's not due to like any of my own thing. It's just my own like. Um, I had some collagen issues, um, that like, it's like a birth defect or so whatever it is. It's like my collagen in my body doesn't really generate really well. So it's like my tendons and ligaments are very, very weak and brittle. So just to get where I'm at, I'm incredibly thankful. Um, and I didn't know that until I was like mid thirties. Um, but, uh, yeah, man. Uh, so fast forward to 2020, you know, I, uh, well, it's funny. It's like before that, about a couple, a couple of years before that, three years before that, I meet, uh, we're at a walk meet. So I'm judging, you know, I'm into the sport, you know, I'm in the judge. We run meets, you know, with, with JP and Ben and Jeff and this whole crew here in Kansas city, we're running meets. Um, and this, uh, uh, lady, um, comes to the gym and she's squatting like 400 pounds, right? And I walk up to her and I'm like, Hey, you need a spot. Cause she's warming up at like 400, like in the warm up room. Right. And it's like, that's wild to me. Right. And her, her handler is like, no, she's strong. She's got it. And I'm like, well, that's 400 pounds. And if she goes down in this warm up room, she's hurt. So I'm going to help. So I'm going to grab someone else. We're going to side spot her just to keep her safe. Cause she's really strong. Right. Um, Cause I've seen enough people get hurt. Right. At this point. Um, myself included. And, uh, she's like, thank you a lot. She's like super soft-spoken and stuff like that. And that was my first experience with Kirsten Skurlock. Mm. And that relationship maintained itself over the years as she like squatted like 400, 440 or whatever. And then what to what, you know, and that's when, when her and I kind of linked up two to three years later, um, to kind of do some of the showdown stuff. And that's when I kind of like 
to be honest with you, that's probably one of the most when I most rose to prominence in terms of like what I was known for, because like I wore my track suits and I wore my track jackets as a means to, cause I would coach. Um, but the rule book, I'm a judge as well. Right. You know, so I judge as much as I can. Um, that's another reason why, you know, I kind of felt like I, I was known, uh, the 2020 showdown, uh, I caught a lot of heat for, uh, giving John hack red lights from the front for squat depth. But, uh, that was fun. Uh, that's probably the first time I ever caught any type of legitimate notoriety. They're like, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> um, but fast forward to that, you know, my afford on that, like I started wearing track jackets, just put them on over my judges polo because the rules is you can't wear a judges polo. Right. While coaching. You can't, you know, be and be and be director and coach, like at least in a, an official capacity in like this stuff. Right. So you at least need to be wearing street clothes or whatever, just so you don't look like you're playing favorites. And uh, so this is what I did. I started putting these things on and then like I started, you know, I had a couple and then eventually like I had people, can you wear like the same color as my singlet? I'm like, yes. Good thing is mostly, <laughs> mostly those are black, but then like some clients, like they want teal or they want these. And I was like, okay, well, I'll start collecting them and stuff. 90 track suits later. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah to kind of move forward on that but then yeah like you know i kind of like well i should start doing this so like you know i had some clients and i had you know a lot of people that you know again like i tell people it's like i coach some of the best in the sport and i coach a lot of people that you'll never hear of and some of the, the you know they're the, the greatest people and uh i've done a lot and by the time i had coached kirsten and kind of got a lot of visibility i would say I mean, I'd already coached like 300, 400 people. It's kind of came through at least my programming or direct coaching or help. Um, it was weird. Um, it was a weird time. And it was all done through Google, Google Sheets or Excel or whatever, right? There was no apps or anything. And I still have a ton, <laughs> a ton of, of spreadsheets. And uh, oh, I still use the exact same Google sheet template I've been using since 2015. My friend, I don't use any of the fancy apps or anything. I'm so stuck in my ways and I'm not a tech guy. You know, I am not tech savvy. Can't do anything fancy. Dropped out of high school. So when we start, when I started doing programming in 2015, 2016, I was doing the strength portion of our CrossFitters programs. It was so easy to do it in a Google spreadsheet because all the coaches can go input their own portion, right? The gymnastics oh. coach was writing the gymnastics stuff for our competitive CrossFit team. We took a, a, a team to the games in 2015, 2016, and I was writing all the powerlifting. I still write it in the exact same spreadsheet. Everyone's like, dude, there's so many apps that get with the times. I'm like, ah. I can't. <laughs> I I still use a spreadsheet from time to time. Um, I use like for the most part, I use an app now, but like it's just mainly because it keeps consistency and it keeps some analytics. So I can look at year over year and I give some of my clients like year in summaries of how what they progressed. Um, and that's about it. So but that's the only reason why I kind of use it, because it just kind of helped my process a little bit faster um, so I can help people because that's that. at the end of the day, like I have my big kid job. That's what I pay my bills on. That's what I do everything on. This is my passion. This is what I love to do. Um, I take money because it's what keeps people accountable and not wasting my time. Yep. Um, I found that like when I wasn't taking money, people were like, yeah, I'm not even paying for it anyway. It doesn't matter. So and, and I, I kind of like at least, you know, I would try to, well, how much money like would you like 
if you lost like this much money, would it like make you mad? They're like, yeah, I probably wouldn't be happy about, okay, let's do that. <laughs> right. That was my, that was my charging strategy at that point. And it wasn't even about that. Um, and now it's just, you know, it's more an official capacity, but you know, I just kind of, even now I just kind of kept finding myself at big meets, right. You know, working with Kirsten and then working with Brittany Chown and working with these other people. And they kind of just started, Hey, you should work with this guy. Like you should work with Mike. Like he, you know, he, he kind of just, he's weird, but he gets it and he does really, really well. And it's like, you know, it just kind of slowly trickling in. And then what one big meet, you know, went from judging them and helping out to coaching and being the meme that I am with a Ukrainian Yushanka on my head at the American <laughs> pro. Right? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's funny because it's, in the age that we're in, and we'll kind of backtrack in a second and talk about kind of the age of modern powerlifting and what it is now, but in the age of modern powerlifting, so many people, especially as the last three years, have risen into positions of being online coaches, and some of them risen into large capacity as being online coach without any back backing background and nothing to truly show for it right now. Right. How many of these coaches actually have coached a single all time world record or been able to be exposed to an all time world record, you know, right. and to be able to take someone who's already at a very elite level. Right. The hardest thing to do is take someone who's already a top level power lifter and continue pushing that envelope. Right. So it's like you don't see so many of these people doing that, but you've been able to quickly rise to fame because it wasn't just you all of a sudden learning it and figuring it out. You've been doing this for so goddamn long, but the rise of social media and being in contact with these people helped you get that exposure. Right. Right. I mean, I met Zach Myers because uh, at the 20. 21, 22, 2020, 21 showdown. Um, because he had dinner, he was having dinner with uh, Kirsten, myself, um, and like at the time, my kid and my ex-wife and stuff like that. And uh, Zach was just kind of chilling at the end of the table. And he was just talking to my kid. My kid was like three at the time. My kid loved <laughs> And so it was like, and then at the time, you know, he was learning to talk. And he's like, he would sit there and, you know, he's like, Zach's the strongest in the world. He'd go to daycare and be like, my friend Zach is the strongest person in the world. Right. And I'm almost like, he's like, dad's Zach stronger than you. I'm like, thanks, yeah. bud. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, man. Um, and then of course, they're like, just, you know, but the thing is, is I just maintain those relationships. Right. If I don't coach, I wasn't coaching Zach at the time or anything like that. It's just, we remained friends. We remain connections. Like I try, if in this sport, I try to be very approachable. I try to just, I don't work any angles. If someone asks me questions, it's weird. Like people will come up to me and ask me life advice. They'll ask me what, cause I'm just older, you know, and I've seen a lot of crap and I'm like, you know what? Like, I'll give you my two cents, take it for what it's worth. Right. And I, and I find myself in that position and uh, you know, with Zach, like when he came to me, he's like, yeah, I'm just kind of nursing some stuff. And I saw him at the American pro one, he was fighting his adductor. And, and I had told him, it's like, you know, I had already detached three adductor muscles. I am no stranger to like rehabbing that and uh, rebuilding my squat and all this other stuff. And he's like, you know, Hey, like, do you think you could help me rehab this? I was like, yeah, sure. And that kind of turned into like us kind of more of official co coaching capacity. And then six months later, he breaks the 308 world record at a local meet just because this guy, I think I want to go for it. I'm like, could be neat. And we did it. <laughs> right. It's just like, 
Kirsten's terror, like during 2021, she did the showdown two hybrid and ghost clash, right? Like ghost clash one and podium three times, right? She put 120, like when we started working, she put like 120 pounds on her total at the showdown, you know, took some records and, you know, taking her 242, then went on a tear at, at hybrid and took a podium there. Like this is as a 242 pound woman at pro meets going up against the likes of Hunter Henderson, Samantha Rice, you know, you know, Ashley Contorno and like all these like strong 165ers who just have a clear distinct advantage. And she's taking podiums because of how dominant her lifting is and stuff. And we're, and people are like, and all they see is this crazy dude in the track seat, just playing the bongos on the platform, just like yelling at her during her deadlift and stuff. They're like, who's that guy? Like, that's the guy, that's the guy is putting her, is helping her put her in this position. She's lifting. He's the one doing all the, all the, all the strength work. It's like, he's oh. from Missouri. Ah, makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you from Miami, at least. I'm like, oh, the middle over there. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Dude, the Midwest is the Midwest is nuts, man. The Midwest is just this weird strength mecca. It's it's a weird thing, and you know, between Nebraska, Ohio, like you know, that's you know the more East Midwest. But the thing is, is like all the areas, like this is random people, man. They're just super, super strong, and I tell people all the time. Just because you think you're the best now, do not confuse. Do not confuse that you're that you are the best in the world. Just because you own that title and you own the current record, don't sit on it. Don't sit on it until they think that that's what, you, what it is. There's someone walking around here who's stronger than you. Trust and, that. And that's the funny thing. That's I think a perfect transition to kind of talk about modern powerlifting. Because a lot of people, if you think modern powerlifting, you think the the rise of raw, you think like 2014, 2015, 2016, you know, the, those shifts, these bigger meets, these larger money meets, more people being exposed to it through CrossFit. But really, modern even in that era of modern powerlifting, when someone was at the top like a lot of those top positions would be held for a significant amount of time. There may be one contender who's, you know, the battle of the two forty twos or the two twenties. And those guys may be going back and forth, but like Eric Lillibridge was up on this pedestal, untouchable, you know, Andre Manachev up on this pedestal, untouchable. It's like, you know, those people, when they're at the top, they're not really thinking as much about all those other competitions because they're so far behind this now actual true era of modern powerlifting that we're in, in this present day of just the last couple of years. It's like, you never know who's going to come out of the woodworks and just fucking blow that person away. And there's con there's so many other people just barely behind on the rankings. It's an arms race, man. It is an arm. It's a nuclear arms race to find out who who's who's getting stronger. Zahir competes this weekend, I believe. No, it's this weekend. Yeah, I think it's like eight. He's like eight days, seven, eight days out. Yes, yeah, and he squatted nine fifty two for a double and a pair of THPs. First of all, he has to be so full of shit because he just started posting on social media like four or five weeks ago, and he's like first squat in years and was squatting like 800 for a double or something I'm like bro come on you've been doing something on the background you know Dude, eric eric literally has barely been lifting and walks around and then like a couple years ago like he you know he hurt his back and he was a kind of he did one strength block in australia and squatted, think, right? and, squatted and squatted like 1035 a i couple remember years that back 
Yeah, like two three years ago, I think during COVID, he was like in Australia, locked down there. And I'm like, dude, is he going to make a comeback? And then got injured again. It's not fleeting. Strength isn't fleeting the way that we think it is. A lot of people think it's like, oh, if I just stop lifting, it's like, no, it's there. It's there. You just have to retrain it and you have to rebuild it. And it's just like, as long as you maintain the tissue and you maintain your your size and your strength, what makes you think for one second? Is it going where, unless you like your 275 pounds just jacked and you cut down to 220, then yeah, you probably lost your strength. But if you just stayed 225 and you stayed, or 275 and you stayed pretty jacked, neurologically, it's probably detrained, but strength and tissue and dense density, it's still there. It's all there. You just got to rebuild it. That's very true. But his comeback, that was one of the most exciting things that I've seen. And it's so funny because so many people don't know or appreciate it. That this true modern day of powerlifting don't yeah. know that other era. And that's why it's like it's hard to say. A lot of people think, you know, modern powerlifting was that rise around that era. But today they don't know about that era. So it's like the modern is really the now, you know, like they also like a lot of the ladies today. They just don't know the ladies that came before. Right. It, like they just don't, they don't know the Janice Finkelman's. They don't know the, um, you know, hell, even DC, you know, Mariana, Steffi, Mariana, and- Steffi, like to be like, well, who are those? Yeah. But I'm like, when Christy broke Mariana's record, it was like, do you know how significant that was? Yeah. But it's insane. And it's just like, don't gloss over that. You know, like I helped, you know, I helped Samantha Rice at the Pioneer earlier this year. And uh, I I screwed up <laughs> me and her, her boyfriend, Eric, screwed up her numbers and she was going to top CC's coefficient. And we missed it. We we, we, we messed up the, the math by two and a half kilos and we cost her. She's number four and she would have been number three all time topping CC at 198. And we're like, oh, and I'll, I have to carry that for the rest of my life. But <laughs> like, she's like, I could have done it. I'm like, I know you could have done it. It's like all she would have had to pull is 624. She pulled 618. Right. <laughs> Just like it is. what. But again, that continues to grow. It continues to grow. I mean, these people, it's funny because even the lifters that you see today are starting to slowly become lifters, of, lifters of a bygone era. You know, it's like, you know, Christy is 43. She became the best in the world. If she continues to lift, she'll continue like that. That that record's going to stand. But there's a lot of people today that don't even know who Christy is, which is insane to me. It, it, it baffles me. And uh, the sport, it, it, it's a weird thing that I, the only thing I have is it's very, what have you done for me lately? And uh, I think if that changes a little bit, like you'll start seeing a little bit, a bigger appreciation, but everyone wants to see the next big lift. And that's the exciting part of it. Like that is like everyone wants, wants to see the next big lift, but they don't want to appreciate the the big lift that that was off the back of. Right. Right. You know, that's for still 641 deadlifts. You know, who's going to do a lot of people know though there was a professional strong woman who pulled 705. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So what's next? I, you think, know, what, I think part of the issue of that too, is it's, it's also not just, the era of people who want to see what the next biggest lift is. Cause I feel like that that's still a large population of the powerlifting community. And that was a really big thing a couple of years back. Holy crap. What's getting posted on King of the lifts. Who did this crazy training set or who did this crazy thing? But now so much of it, if this much younger generation, generation, especially in the tested side is who is more 
cool and smooth and I don't know what on social media and suave that I want to look like them and move like them or chew on my dog tag like them. You know what I mean? And I think it's kind of split where there's still, yeah, those some of those people that always want to see some something big, impressive, or that they can shit talk on or shit on it. Or it's who can I see them do these interesting, weird videos that make my head hurt and I can't watch TikTok because I'm too old. Right. Yeah. It's the culture of like you and I, it was the culture of hold my beer. Right. And now it's like, well, I can do that. Right. And so let me get some straps. Let me, I can do that. And so it's just hold my beer. It's just hold my beer with click like on YouTube. Right. It's just, that's what it is. It's just, the ego hasn't changed. It's just, a, it's the sensibilities of things are so much different these days. These kids are strong. They, 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 they are, they're super, super strong and it's, it continues to get better and it continues to be more of an arms race, but I'm interested because I just saw Phil Herndon wearing single ply. Right. I think he's competing this weekend, next weekend, some of that. Yep. Zach's been talking about how he wants to entertain multiply. He wants a 3000 pound total and you're going to start seeing people maybe dabble in other things because they're just getting, what's the next, what's the next raw meat. Right. Whatever. They want to keep doing that. Like what else is there to do? Right. How many meets can John Hack show up to and just continue to win and, and stuff like that before it just kind of gets boring. Right. Right. It's gotta be something more to that. Right. There's gotta be more, something more to it. You know, that's perfectly for one of the questions and one of the last talking points I want to talk about. This is something I've asked my last couple of guests, Joe and I had a really good uh, conversation about it. And I say this all the time. Us being people who have been around in it, you know, for quite a while, much longer than the majority of the population of people who are in it right now. You know, I can say in 2014, 2015, I did not ever imagine that it would be on the scale and the capacity that it is today. Hell, even in 2017, 2018, when I was in the powerlifting scene in a large capacity, you know, doing what I was doing, I still didn't see it growing to what it is right now. It's absurd amount of growth. What do you think as far as the growth we are right now and what's the potential in the next three years? What do you see the pivots and changes being? Consistency. The pivots is because we're it, it, like the sport had to kind of blow up a little bit in order to like become a little more cohesive. Right. So you saw a lot of the big fractures of la the last couple of years, feds, whatever, People are still now starting to find homes and they're starting to commit to them better. There's more organization and those types of things. I think what you see out of the sport, I think you start seeing a, like different methodologies, like sessions and stuff like that. You start seeing a more spectator-friendly sport. I think you start seeing more records, more ladies blowing stuff out of the water. Um, and you start getting a lot of attention around that. Uh, you start seeing the average gym goer wanting to power lift a lot more and you start kind of see like a two point, in my opinion, I think you see a, a, like a 2.0 version of what the CrossFit like generation did. I think we see the end, we see another influx in the next two to three years because I've seen these global gyms. I've, I'm, I'm working out of one right now and these kids are just coming in at like 19 years old, 18 years old, and they're just slaying plates. And I'm like, well, I've thought about competing. I'm like, you should. Right. And I think the next two to three years, you're going to start seeing an influx of like this fitness generation of kids 
that's going to start stepping on the platform and they're going to start doing something with it. And you're going to start seeing a bunch of kids just coming in droves being extremely strong. And it's going to make a lot of us 30, 35 year olds, 29 year olds feel very old. And I think that's what you're probably going to see over the next week. You're going to see a huge influx of youth. That's my opinion. Um, because it's stabling out where it's like, you know, between the WRPF, you know, doing the regional system and different things like that. And the the big feds, in my opinion, what I call them is there's consistency there now. And so they can just go and they can commit to something. So you see these kids because they don't know what to do. You give them a place, give them a home and give them an outlet. Like, yeah, you're just going to see a ton of them come through. And I, I think that's what you're going to see in the next couple of years. Just a big influx of youth. Yeah, I agree. I think it's already trending in that direction. I mean, I can see it being in a big city like Miami and just all these college kids and all just swarming. And like you said, so many of them, you talk to them about competing, they're like, oh, no, but they'll max out all the time and, you know, kind of follow powerlifting and wear the Anaka sport or whatever these brands are, you know, and they're super involved in the culture to an extent, but haven't taken that full leap. I agree. I think that's the direction we're going to continue to go. I just ran my my last USAPL meet uh, weekend before last, and the amount of sub-juniors, teens, teen one, teen two, teen three, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids that I had was almost half of the meet. And yeah. like... I, I love to always ask in the rule briefing, hey, you know, whose first meet is it? And there was like 20 hands that went up, you know, all these super, super young kids. It's going to definitely continue in that direction um, and cause, like you said, a massive amount of growth. I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, your other theory of if people want to, the, the people who've been around in it longer get bored of it and want to, you know, revitalize the old school. Because what do they say? With fashion, with everything, things come in like 20 year waves. Right. And it's it's been about 20 years since, you know, the height of multiply, you know, so who knows if we're going to see a resurgence of that and a different a light and a different respect for it. That'd be definitely very interesting to see. It would. And I think if you see it, because the thing is, you know, it does believe contrary to popular belief, multiply actually is way more friendly on the body than raw is. It's just, it's a little more supportive and your, your stuff like that. So people might try to find ways to train and you know, it just requires different crews. There's a lot of individuality you can have as a raw lifter and stuff like that. But as crews, like crew driven people, like you might start seeing a little bit more of that. It, it, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, the best can only do the best things all the time in one way for so long before it's like, uh, eh, they either walk away or they find something else to do. That's just, that's just kind of the truth of it. Right. So um, that's kind of happened to my old training partner. You know, he was still the best in the world when he walked away, you know, he just didn't really want to transition to the raw thing. He squatted like 565 at 170 pounds in like 2014, you know, he had like a, he had a huge total, like a 660 deadlift, like a 650 deadlift or something like that. It's just this little dude, you know, and it was just like, eh, raw's boring. And he just, cause he saw it. He's like, I'm not doing this. And he quit. You may see that. And that's probably what you'll see more. You'll see people go to multiplier, go to gear. And then you'll see people honestly just kind of take their exit. I mean, that's just 
usually what you see. That's the trend of everything, right? We've seen that so many times over the years. And like we said, perfect examples here took his exit out of nowhere after dominating for so long. But then it's always cool when you see kind of, again, that that cycle of that resurgence. So that'd be also really cool to see over the next two or three years to see who makes a comeback from our golden days of Raw, what we you know came up watching. If we see someone like an Eric Lillibridge come back, you know, just that that all that kind of stuff will also be really cool to see. But more than anything, these this new young blood pushing beyond what we thought was possible and just seeing those ranks constantly changing. We saw that a little bit. And the funny thing is, is one of the last thing in you know, the last point I make that fortifies that is when Hunter broke the 165 records, right? She kind of was on the come up with the showdown, stuff like that. Christy would like, for the most part, like I think after 2019, she was kind of just uh 2018 2019 record breakers she kind of just she broke some records she did you know i think she didn't have a great meet then but like she kind of chilled out for a while she just kind of chilled and then like hunter kind of broke some records she broke the record at the showdown and then christy jumped on a plane came to kansas city and retook the squat record and hunter was spotting her i was judging that meet and i was just like hmm Hmm, that's interesting. And you just, you, you see that. And, and, and you know, Chrissy's a, a fighter, you know, and, 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 you know, she's quiet, her quiet demeanor to her, but, but deep down in her, that woman is a fierce competitor. And she's like, that's my record. I'll yeah. take that back. You just rented it, <laughs> you know? And that's when, and, and again, you just kind of, and after that, like you just saw her just kind of be like, well, there's Brianni, there's Hunter. There's all these people. I guess I'm going to have to beat them all off with a stick and let them know who's the queen. And she did that. And she continued to do that for up until this point. You know, she just continued to just assert her dominance in the sport because she knew these kids were coming up and she was going to have to just protect her throne. Yeah. And that's what she did. And you know what? That I'm uh, I'm very much a nerd to powerlifting in that regard, as I know you are also. Just watching those things and kind of predicting of what's going to change and what's going to not. And I also think that that's that's a big differentiator and something that's very very important when it comes to coaching. And not a lot of people necessarily think or do, you know, because like if you want your athlete at the top, or you know, even if it's just for your own knowledge to know how the sport is pivoting, you got to be able to make these predictions, kind of see some of the, these things coming, and know who's who and it's like like you said it's so unfortunate people don't know who christy is you know and that that, that's a mistake if you don't know who she is you got to know all those lifters not just if they have 100k followers on social media right because these are the best in the world at the end of the day alex scoreboards talk right because they're gonna they're gonna look at the top of open powerlifting they're like who's christy hawkins right who's samantha rice i mean at the end of the day it's like even even the most popular people briani and stuff like that like in five, six years time when, or if they're not, if they're not lifting people like these next kids are like, well, who was that? And right. it's going to be people like you and me. We're like, well, kid, let me tell you who this was. Right. It's we, we find ourselves in this space. And I find myself as like a steward of the sport at this point, I have to pass that knowledge of who these people are. Right. And it's like, you have to understand this is a much different time and this is how it was approached. And this is what came before you and stuff. And I'm a very much so respect respect your history and where you came from. And again, I love this sport and I just have the history behind it and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, so it's, you take it and you protect it. And that's what, I mean, that's what you have. At the end of the day, it's if you walk away from this, all you have is the memories. So protect those memories, protect those people that impacted it. And just remember those times, right? Records will come and go. The memories will be forever. 
it, one of the craziest, most recent realizations that I had that it's like we're in a whole new era and it just just changed and pivoted so, so much. I asked a group of kids at my gym. I forgot how it came up. And I was like, oh, Mark Bell. And they're like, who? I'm like, you don't know who Mark Bell is? And they're yeah. like, what? No. Like, no. Who? It's like these kids that were 20 years old, not even that young. They're not 15, 16. They're 20. But they just found the sport three minutes ago. They're passionate and they love it but they don't know their history. You know, it's like when you have these history classes, these history courses, I do the same thing with music. It's it's not like, you know, it's not to hate or anything, but when people, they talk to me about hardcore punk rock and I'm like, what, you don't know about this or that? It's like, you got to know your history fully immersed in it uh, because I think that's just going to help you stand out and put you in an advantage, especially if you want to make it a career, right? For sure. Yeah, man. I love it. Dude, it was great chatting with you. Great hearing yeah. the Michael Greeno story. I had a ton of fun. Where are people going to see you next? What's next for you? Uh, man. Coast uh, Clash? I'll be stepping on the platform for Coast Clash. I'll be duct taping my rickety ass on it. And on the amateur day, I am. I have a 485 dots, kind of. I was kind of good at some <laughs> point. I squatted 700 and bench close to five. My deadlift's garbage. Um, but yeah, I'll have quite a few people there. Um, I think I have like six or seven, maybe eight people between both days. So I have a contingent. <laughs> I've been kind of run, run, running through with about, you know, um, a, a pretty good group of people. And I'll continue to do that. But then are you wrapping knees and, and wrapping your own knees? So uh, probably <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so, yeah I'll, see you, I'll see you Ghost Clash, sir. Hell yeah, bro. Hell, hell yeah. Let everyone know where they can find you. Sign us out. Thank you, sir. Uh, MJ Greeno, uh, Instagram. You can find me there. Hell yeah. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode of the WRPF podcast.